Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. That it would be interesting if I was still playing at this moment, how educated I would be, how much I would be um, able to speak out because it takes so much of your time to be focused. And that's one thing that this pandemic has maybe helped athletes because they can take some time to be educated. They can take the, some time away from their craft. Um, and I think it's um, we'll see after after it ends, when it comes back for the U.S. Open, if players have a have a stance, if they're going to. Mm-hmm. Know, wear a Black Lives Matter patch, if they're going to bring it up in their interviews, or if they're going to remain silent and still kind of um, just let it be done by others, let the Colin Kaepernick speak out and them try to be sort of um, vanilla and plain and, and hopefully collect those mm-hmm. corporate dollars. Um, so it'll be interesting to see when when they come back um, who's got a voice. And, and Naomi has already spoken up, and I, I love her for that. I love the fact that she's, uh, in my opinion, on the right side of history and... and, and um, fighting for, for justice for all. All right. Today's a very special day for Jason Knapp because we got Mr. James Blake in the house. What's up, everybody? How's it going, Marcus? We're super, super excited to have you on. So um, tell us a little bit of story. Where, where did you where did you grow up? You're an East Coast kid, West Coast kid? I am an East Coast kid. I was born in New York, uh, but grew up in Connecticut mostly. I moved uh, to Connecticut when I was about six and uh, grew up in Fairfield. Used to come back uh, to your neck of the woods, to Harlem, mm-hmm. uh, where I first learned to play tennis at the Harlem Junior Tennis Program. So I loved it and then forever thought I was going to be an East Coaster. Lived almost my whole life there and, you know, as, as uh, happens often, met a, met a girl. And uh, my wife uh, wanted to be out on the West Coast and happy wife, happy life. I'm now... Mm-hmm proud San Diegan and yes. love it. Um, and my kids are, are growing up here and they're loving it as well. So I'm, uh, I'm out on the West Coast now. Tell us a little bit about your parents. You know, you, you know, you share something with, we share something all three. Uh, we all had white mothers and people always ask, how was it to grow up with a white mother? Well, that's the only experience I had. So, so talk about that, share that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that because everyone wants to put your uh, experience into something so unique and so special. And what, like just as you said, it's the only way I know. And so it was to me, it was it was wonderful. I had a great family. My my, um, my dad was a disciplinarian. My mom was a little more of the soft touch, but um, they worked well together. They had a great relationship, and I learned so much from them because my dad. I mean, they were together, as I'm sure your parents were, in a time when it was very uh, taboo to have a, a mixed race uh, relationship. And so they were a little more aware than a lot of people probably would have been at that time uh, because they were they were attacked. They were um, vilified for, for what they were doing. And 
um, it, it really, in my opinion, helped bring out even more love and compassion from mm. my mom because the people that showed her support were her true friends, were the people that really cared. And she, she had a white husband first and mm -hmm. she always talks about, it. I don't right. understand why people want to vilify uh, the fact that I'm in love with a black man now when he treats me so much better than mm -hmm. my white husband, mm -hmm. than my first husband mm -hmm. that was white. And so yeah. she just saw the love that she had for my dad. And it taught me about loving the person, not the, not the culture and not the skin color and not the religion, not anything. She, she loved my dad for, for who he was, not for the color of his skin. My parents, so we, we definitely share that kind of ethnic makeup as far as my dad is African-American, my mom is a white American. And they, they met in 1966 and they actually ended up moving from the United States because not only because of the difficulties of being an interracial couple, but just of the, the politics in the United States at the time and where they saw it heading. But also, a, I think a large factor of that was, one was poverty, but also just the fact of it was really difficult even for their families to accept that, that they were in love and that they wanted to get married. And did that ever affect, did your parents being an interracial couple ever affect like why, where they moved or, or how they spoke to you about, you know, uh, the awareness of who you were and your identity? Yeah, I mean, I still remember uh, vividly my mom, like, almost like the first time I kind of recognized it because I was I was blissfully ignorant as most kids are when you're growing up. Mm. You you don't you just, you kind of want to fit in. But I went to when I was in Connecticut, I was in about a ninety five percent white uh, school district, and I would go into Harlem to play tennis, where it was about ninety eight percent minority, um, and I felt pretty comfortable in both. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, I finally realized that when I was probably about nine or 10 years old and someone commented, um, a white father, um, happened to be from South Africa said to my mom, you know, your kid, he's got some talent, you know, maybe he's going to be, maybe he's going to be good, but it's really too bad. It's a shame, you know, for the way he is, because he can be hated by all people. He can be hated by both sides. And without missing a beat, my mom said, you know what? Mm -hmm. I try to look at it the other way. He can be loved by both sides. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I always felt like my mom believed and she, she truly did. And I think uh, your parents' relationship, my parents' relationship actually becomes stronger because they have to overcome these obstacles. Um, and they knew what they were getting into. They knew the difficulties um, politically um, and, you know, uh, in the United States at that time. So I, I think it, it taught me um, a lot about the fact that there's a lot of people that have these negative thoughts, uh, you know, that that was the first thought of this man, seeing a 10 year old kid and thinking about hatred. Um, it taught me that there's a lot of people in this world that think that way. And um, I need to be able to be okay with that and find a way to try to have compassion the way my mom did and try to tell him, you know, there's the other side to this. If you think about the tennis world, you know, Arthur Ashe on the male side, it was Arthur Ashe. And one of the times I told Jason this story before when, one of the times when I realized in Sweden that I was completely different was um, it was the French Open final. It was Yannick Noir against Mats Wielander. And of course, Mats being Swedish, all the kids were rooting for Mats. And when, when Yannick won, I was the only one standing up in the room like, yes! And everybody, and I took the beating, but I was like, I was good with it. And that was probably was the first time that I really identified, like, I am different, you know? Who are your role models in tennis or, 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 you know, when you were coming up? 
Well, Arthur Ashe was was a role model, but not necessarily um, because I got to see him play, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, one little too late. But my, but the reason I, he was such a role model is because he's the one that got my dad into tennis. He's oh. the reason my father played yeah. tennis. Um, seeing Arthur Ashe and, and wanting to to be like him and, and having him as a role model, so that made him a role model to me. Um, in just being able to learn about him, reading his books, mm-hmm. and, and just learning his uh, stance on education, what he did for. Uh, fighting apartheid and and uh, for human rights, yes. for uh, mm-hmm. for refugees, for um, for AIDS research. So he was a role model in tennis. It was a little different for me because I I, I wasn't as much of um, I was just a sports fan. I wasn't necessarily just a tennis fan. So mm-hmm. I, I love team sports. I love watching Michael Jordan. Love the Giants and football. Um, but in tennis, I I didn't um, pick like necessarily favorites. Actually, Max was one that I, I really looked up to. Yeah. Because I was a hothead when I was a kid. I had a terrible temper. I was a perfectionist. Wow. And seeing Mats and seeing how calm he was in every situation, him and Edberg, another sweep, mm-hmm. seeing them, I didn't understand how it could be such a tense moment in their matches at U.S. Open Finals, French Open Finals, and they could just turn and calmly grab the towel, go and continue playing the match. Like That was something I could yeah. uh, dream of being like that calm. Yeah. And I, I also love Jim Courier for his oh, work wow. ethic. I kind of picked and cho- chose little things about each player that I really liked. And for Courier is that work ethic, that bulldog mentality. And so I, I looked up to people like that. I mean, Yannick had the flair. I mean, he loved that. So I would have been, as much as I loved Mats, I would have been right there on the couch jumping up and down going crazy for Yannick. Because I mean, I got to meet him later. <laughs> I still, I'm not a big like picture taker. I'm terrible about it. But when I did, as I said, I met my, uh, my now wife. I, I met her. She came into my house for the first time, and there were basically no pictures up. But the one that I had up was back when I had my dread. Yeah, you had your dread. And, and I got to hang with, with Yannick, and I took a picture. He had the dread. I had the dread. That was the one <laughs> picture that was in my room. I mean, the guy was so cool. Everything he touched was, was yeah. like, you know, turned to gold. I was just going to say that uh, Stefan Edberg is probably the most Swedish uh, Swede like Stefan Edberg, we have another prominent, like legendary athlete named Ingmar Stenmark, who is a skier. Their, their, their mood never shifts. Like, you know, they, they never get excited about anything. It could be in a tight situation, final match. But I remember that because I used to play tennis as a kid, too. And uh, Stefan Edberg was always known as the, the boring one, you know, but a superb player. Um, but how was it entering the tennis world once you started you know, um, once you left Harlem and started playing, I guess, on the uh, entering the competitive circles and circuits. Yeah, there was um, there are plenty of obstacles along the way. Uh, I, I, I hearken back to being still feeling lucky. So I always want mm-hmm. to feel optimistic and lucky because of what Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson, Mal Washington, mm-hmm. uh, you know, true, tra- true trailblazers went through uh, to make it possible. But I still remember when I first played... Um, tournaments in New England, um, you know, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, and being held out of the first tournament and then telling me oh, this is just, you know, it's just because uh, it's kind of luck of the draw. It's a lottery. It's your first time. So you're you're held out of this one. That means you'll definitely get into the next one. And so the next one comes along and they say, no, you're held out of this one too. You, you know, you didn't get in. And my mom went crazy and mm-hmm. bought it and said, he's going to be in. I get in. And the first person I play is the top seed. And I don't know anything. I don't know any of these people. I've never played in a tournament before. I'm uh, 10 years old uh, or mm-hmm. something. And I'm playing the top seed. I'm just out there playing. And I beat this kid. Mm-hmm. And then moving on, it gets to the I get to the finals. And the, the owner of the club that had basically been the one that held me out um, is there watching. 
until I'm up and about to win and then leaves and refuses to give me the trophy. Um, wow. So he's not wow. like, he left the building. Wow. So I remember thinking about these kind of things. Like, And at oh, that man. point, I was still relatively naive. I'm like, oh, maybe he had some place to go. You know, mm-hmm. he, he watched you know the whole weekend up until the finals when it comes time to hand out the trophy. And then he leaves because, you know, he had something better to do. But it, it made me realize as I got older that there's going to be some of these hurdles. And then, you know, as I got into the pro ranks and started having success, mm-hmm. um, that's when it became a little more uh, more real. I had a you know pretty uh, public incident with Leighton Hewitt where mm-hmm. he uh, made some racist remarks during a match, and so that was kind of my trial by fire of this huge press conference, huge news about what's going to happen because this happened right at the U.S. Open, um, and then that's when my I kind of make my first splash onto the scene, and it's you know because of a ra- racial incident, and that leads to. In fact, the the FBI getting involved because I start getting my parents start getting death threats at work, um, and people saying they know where uh, um, where they work, where they live, and you know because it's an interracial couple at that point, people still were uh, obsessed with that, and it was it was a little difficult and a little trying at that time, but I knew my parents were standing behind me, and they were they were unbelievably uh, strong at, at those times. Yeah, I have to ask you about that thing because. I read about that, and now, you know, as a sports fan, I knew about it. But didn't Leighton say there was something about the referee was black, well, one of the linemen were black, and said, don't you see the color of his skin? And so I'm like, think about the privilege. And then we don't have to harp on, on Leighton. I know you guys made, made up on this, but it was also an opportunity to learn. I mean, as a black person, you step into this world where the 99% is all white, and you don't think the guy's going to call the ball out because of anything but when Leighton got pushed it was such a weak move you know it, it was and I, I still to this day think it's crazy because he was arguing about football calls and so he said that you know and he didn't say anything about the cover skin but he said look at him look at him you tell me what's what's the same and it was obviously a black linesman pointing to me and so it was intimated that it was because of the color of his skin but mm-hmm. I still to this day the thing that always baffles me is he's arguing about getting called for footballs when he moves his feet when he serves so there's no way he can know for sure whether or not he stepped over the line um and I, I just don't get how you can argue that if you're arguing a ball that you saw in mm-hmm. and they saw out I mean we've, we've seen McEnroe do that a million times that's understandable but arguing football calls to me seems just shocking and it just but it just shows that in the heat of the moment tense situations people kind of have um whether it's a fear of losing or uh, the competition in general and adrenaline, they're going to explode. And he exploded in a, in a pretty ugly situation. Um, we talked about it. Like you said, we made up, everything was fine. And, you know, we never had an incident after that, but it was, um, it, that one was, was pretty, uh, yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> I, I think about that a lot with tennis because it seems in a way as such a lonely it's a lonely sport. Like it's not a team sport. I'm I'm an artist, so when I'm on stage, when it's time for me to, you know, perform and do my thing, I'm there with a band. Marcus, you're when you're on the line, you're there with, you know, your other your sous chefs and you're, you know, part of teams and you obviously have a coach and stuff, but how do you learn to how do you teach yourself to cope with the pressure of it all being on your uh shoulders when you go out there for a game? Yeah, that was one of the things that actually drew me to tennis. I love that. I love the feeling of it being all on you. Um, you're you're uh, you're at fault if you lose. Um, you're to credit if you win. You 
you go out there, you've got a game plan. You're the one that has to adjust. If it's not going well, you're the one that has to, um, sort of problem solve while you're out there and the pressure is, is all on you. And I kind of love that feeling. And that's, that's actually one of the few things that, I mean, I miss playing, but I don't miss the lifestyle. I don't really miss tennis, um, the, the being out on tour as much, but I do miss that, that pressure, that feeling mm-hmm. of it's break point And I want to, I want to succeed. I put in all the work and I, I don't think I would like it if I didn't feel prepared. That was always the, the key for me is if I felt prepared, I know I've done, I put in the thousands and thousands of hours to practice for this. So I'm ready for this, uh, for this situation. I love that feeling. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Do you think activism and, and sport, right? Right now, you see the, the Premier League, people are taking a knee. And of course, Colin uh, Kaepernick started the second movement after, you know, really thinking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and Arthur Ashe and the generation Muhammad Ali. Do you, and in many ways, I think Venus and Serena on the, feet, on the women's side and Richard, which is the, the father, how do you think Black Lives Matter lives within tennis? What does it? Well, I think yeah, Venus and Serena have made a huge, uh, huge impact. You see it already in uh, women's tennis in America with Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, Coco Gauff, um, Haley Baptiste. You've got so many that are following in the footsteps of Venus and Serena that it's it's really inspiring to see. Don't sleep on Naomi. I just cooked with her last week. Don't sleep on Naomi. I, I was thinking, yeah, you're right. I was thinking about the Americans. I mean, she's uh, you know she's been living in America, and it's you know we would love to adopt her as American, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's uh, she's you know she's been a powerful voice as well in this moment, um, and so it's um, it's really great to see and encouraging on the men's side. You got Francis Tiafoe, um, but it's it's a little different because of how individual it is. You're not a part of a team where, like you said, the Premier League, they can all kneel. Uh, and the NBA, you're seeing teams get together. And the Major League Baseball, you're seeing teams get together and make this decision. For tennis players, it's it's really interesting at this moment because it's an individual decision. You're your own small business. Um, right. Some of them larger than, larger than small businesses like Naomi. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you're your own business, so you have to make these decisions. And um, I always have to defer to the players to make their decision for themselves. I, I would love to see, 
some of the players speak out as much as they feel comfortable. Coco Fogoff has already spoke out, spoken out, which I think is incredible for a 16-year-old yeah. to be able to be as poised as she is and speaking out and still focus on the tennis. Because I know for me, for me to be successful, I had to be so um, uh, almost isolated and in a bubble and focused on tennis and on my sport to be successful um, because I, I maybe didn't have the same talent as the Roger Federer or the Marat Sappin, the guys that were, were so naturally gifted. So I felt like I needed to be so focused on it that it would be interesting if I was still playing at this moment, how educated I would be, how much I would be um, able to speak out because it takes so much of your time to be focused. And that's one thing that this pandemic has maybe helped athletes because they can take some time to be educated. They can take the, some time away from their craft. Um, and I think it's um, we'll see after after it ends, when it comes back for the U.S. Open, if players have a have a stance, if they're going to. Mm -hmm. You know, wear a Black Lives Matter patch, if they're going to bring it up in their interviews, or if they're going to remain silent and still kind of um, just let it be done by others, let the Colin Kaepernick speak out and them try to be sort of um, vanilla and plain and, and hopefully collect those mm -hmm. corporate dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be interesting to see when when they come back um, who's got a voice. And, and Naomi has already spoken up, and I, I love her for that. I love the fact that she's, uh, in my opinion, on the right side of history and... and, and um, fighting for, for justice for all. I'm thinking like, as opposed to the music world, it seems like you look at what happened to Colin Kaepernick, but also what happened to, you know, Tommy Smith in 1968, uh, uh, raising his, you know, the Black Power salute on, on the, while receiving the gold medal, like the blowback for, for uh, athletes and like losing sponsorships or being excluded from, uh, from leagues or for, like with Colin not being uh he was excluded from the from the NFL and not given a new job. Well, I'm actually I'm sitting here in my uh, in my little office here looking at a picture of Tommy Smith and John wow. Carlos, mm. and um, I think a lot of people forget that you know Tommy Smith. They they talk about Tommy Smith and John Carlos as heroes. They forget that the next day they were sent home by the Olympic Committee. They oh, were wow. vilified. They were uh, they were okay. um, pretty pretty much blackballed by U.S. track and field for quite a while until now. Mm. They at, at a time in history now. Uh, people regard them as heroes, but at the time, um, they were they were in hiding practically. That, that's what I mean. The cost for athletes is really high, and like you say, you're your own business, and and you know this is your income and what you've trained your entire life to be able to do. Uh, it's a lot at stake. Whereas for artists, sure, there there are things at stake too, but it's actually activism is usually just uh, uh, a, it's you know you're communicating the same thing that your fans are already feeling. Yeah. And for, for athletes, there are huge stakes. So that's why I, I try to um, be careful uh, to criticize them because it's their mm -hmm. own decision and they're, they're making yeah. decisions for their livelihood uh, to support their families and, and for what's important to them. And that's why I also think that people speaking out just to speak out doesn't make sense. If you have a passion, if you feel a certain way about something, then speak out, whether, whether I agree with it or disagree with it, um, I respect your right to speak out about it. Um, and okay. there are plenty of tennis that definitely disagree with my point of view, and I respect them for speaking out. I would love mm -hmm. to actually talk to them and uh, calmly and um, have a conversation that shows why they came from. I think it, I think a lot of the conversations that happen just are going around the issues and not getting mm -hmm. to the why. One thing that very rarely happens is why do you feel that way? Why do you feel mm -hmm. that... Um, you know, the, the inequality gap continues to grow in America. Why do you feel that um, it's okay to have racist policies that are continuing to be uh, in effect? 
that make it margin that marginalize the black community. What you know, why is that okay? And you start getting to like why um, you know where they came from and what they feel, and they're you know okay, well, it's just it's all about hard work, and you know anyone has the American dream, and not realizing that they've never been around a black community that's been. Uh, where the public education uh, there doesn't give them a fair chance because of the property taxes, because of the laws that make it so that they're going to get less funding and not be not have the same kind of schools that there are in a white community. So there's there's a lot of things that I think people would love to uh, that I would love to talk to them about. But I, I respect all of them for speaking out. But James, one thing that I admire with you is that. Every time it's a heated moment, you, your book talks about grace, but you really, you have grace. Uh, and one time when you really got tested is in, you know, 2015 in the city that we love here in New York City. You got basically football tackled in front of your hotel. Uh, tell us about what happened and did the police officer ever apologize to you? Like, to t- tell us about that situation. Yeah, it was um, it was surreal. I was um, just waiting to go to the U.S. Open to do an appearance. I was um, I retired a couple of years earlier, so I was just doing some corporate events and waiting. I just flown in that morning on a red eye, waiting for um, the car to pick me up. And I look up and I see someone running at me. And if you see the video that's been you know out there everywhere, I'm actually smiling because I think I'm in New York, it's yeah. the U.S. Open. I just got there. This is some fan running up and telling me I saw the Agassi match. I saw and. Yeah. This guy's running at me, and I think it's kind of strange, but then, I mean, in a split second, he pins me against the, the wall, throws me on the ground, and um, puts his knee in my back, and, you know, cuffs me, and I, I don't even know what to do, but, you know, I don't know how, if you had the conversation with your dad as well, but for me, I remember back to the conversations I had with my dad, and I said, I'm doing whatever you say, I'm complying 100%. No, assuming this is an officer, even though he never said that he was an officer, I just assumed he's cuffing me, and in broad daylight in the, in the middle of New York city, I assume this has got to be an officer. And, um, then he, yeah, he never apologized after about 10 minutes of having me in custody, uh, never really explaining much, um, eventually telling me they were looking for someone that was operating a credit card fraud scheme. Um, and then someone realized that it wasn't me. Um, I think they must've Googled and they looked at the, cause they were looking at the phone and looking at me and, um, but no, they never apologized. Um, just uh, his only comment to me at the end was just so you know, the person we're looking for is still in the area that had nothing to do with me. I didn't <laughs> care. Um, but then, uh, so then it ended up, um, as I talked about in my book, it turned me into sort of an accidental activist. It made me realize that this happens far too often. And I wanted to brush it under the table. I wanted to, you know, tell my wife and, um, say, you know, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to do anything. And she said, well, what if it happened to me? What if it happened to somebody you love? You know, and I thought, okay, there's too many people this happens to that aren't able to go on Good Morning America tomorrow to talk about it. And then, so that's what right. I did. I went and started talking about it. I tried to do something positive with it. I created a fellowship um, for people that that happens to, um, to have legal assistance because most people, I, I feel like you said, I feel like I'm calm and cool under pressure. And in that situation, I was still so in shock, so vulnerable, that I didn't think to get their badge numbers, their names, their precincts, anything like that. Yeah. Only because I was able to go to the media and have uh, afford a lawyer. That's why I was able to get all that information and find that out. But most people will be off to their nine to five job from there and never get any sort of um, you know closure on that situation. They would just be done. So 
for me, I, um, I felt like I needed to speak out for all those people that, that wouldn't have that. And, and so I did what I could to, um, when I get an audience with Mayor de Blasio and please uh, mm-hmm. Bill Bratton, I'm going to try to use it for something positive instead of just trying to sue the New York City and, you know, increase my, uh, you know, my, my income. I'm not, I'm not looking to do that. I want to do something that's going to help. And the other thing I want to do is increase the accountability. So I, I fought for two years, over two years, to try to get some sort of justice for this officer who this was his fifth offense. Uh, of something like this, of excessive force, and one of them including breaking a guy's jaw, all African-American men. Um, and so I tried so hard and tried to say this is this is a precedent-breaking case, but all they could do was he lost five vacation days. And is it is it true that he actually tried to sue you or actually sued you? That's what I heard, yeah. Yeah, he tried to sue me. He tried to sue my book publisher. He tried to sue the city of New York. Uh, the New York Police Department and the Civilian Complaint Review Board. He tried to sue all of us. They were all thrown out. Um, it just makes you think, how do you get to this disconnect between law enforcement and the people they aim to protect and serve? With, there's not that self-consciousness of, oh, okay, I've actually uh, uh, cr- crossed a boundary or stepped across a line here. I was actually in the wrong. Uh, I mean, hearing that he tried to sue you is just mind-blowing. Yeah, and he's backed up by the police unions. The police unions, that's mm. one thing that's a huge macro wow. issue that's a big problem, I think, is these police unions are so strong. They're going to back him up. And even if he had been fired by NYPD, there's a good chance Miami PD, Chicago PD, LA, yeah, someone else is going to uh, pick him up and hire him because these unions are so strong that they, they hide those records. They don't want people to know when they have other excessive force violations and things like that and misconduct. And they are going to fight on his behalf no matter what. And the, so for this, the, the five day, five lo- loss of five vacation days to me is a slap on the wrist, almost saying, go out and do it again. You know, oh, this no, is public. I'm on camera again, uh, you know, with a public figure. So what's to stop him from next time it's two in the morning in the back alley? Mm-hmm. Does he think he's really going to get punished if he beats someone up even worse? It, it just doesn't yeah. to me. It, yeah. it seems like it's um, it's so counterproductive to give them to give someone that's got lethal force. They've got this much power. You need to be able to hold them accountable when they make tragic mistakes. So fast forward to today. What is your what is your activism look like today when with everything that's going on in the wake of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor? Well, I'm just encouraged now because I mean I've been screaming about this for the last five years and now and, and the black and brown community have been screaming about this for the last mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. decades, you know, three, four, mm-hmm. five decades about police brutality and and um and Colin Kaepernick brought uh, much more attention to it just a few years ago um at great personal um expense. But um now the fact that it's growing and the the, the majority is actually listening um mm-hmm. after the George Floyd incident, I'm I'm extremely encouraged. For me, uh, you know, I wrote a book about it, but I'm also just encouraged to see athletes speaking up. I don't have the same platform I used to have, you know, when I was, you know, hitting the balls, uh, you know, hitting my forehand pretty well. Now it's uh, it's just speaking out when I can. I love the fact that you guys are, are, are talking about it, and, and these kind of forums are, are, are my my platform now. And so I thank you for having me. But um, now it's just getting people. One of the biggest things is these protests have actually had. Um, impact immediately. Um, they're mm-hmm. trying to repeal 50A in New York, which is what shields uh, the police's uh, police records. Um, they're uh, creating Brianna's law in Kentucky yeah. for the no-knock warrants. They're trying to get a national chokehold ban. These protests are having effects immediately, and I, I try to encourage people that 
the next best thing to uh, to protesting, to having an effect, is voting. Uh, vote for people that are actually going to have your rights uh, in mind because for too long we have people that just want the status quo. And the status quo for the black and brown community is not good. It's not something where um, there's fairness, there's not equality, there continues to be police brutality, there continues to be um, too many policies that are um, making us feel like second-class citizens. So vote for people that are going to have those interests at, at heart and not just the people that want to keep the status quo and keep their jobs and keep um, keep the lobbyists employed. And so it's um, it, it, that's the next step is November. My very, very last question we have here is, because I know you got to go, but our last question is, hip-hop turned 47 this week. And I always wanted to know, when you were working out or when you were traveling, because just like Jason said, you're in your own space, what was what was in the headphones? What were you listening to during the during your time coming up? So the the one song that uh, they, they give you the choice of uh, what you can play when you come out of the U.S. Open, and the one song I always had to have, "Juicy" by Biggie. Oh, there that you go. The best oh, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that. That's stepping out with swag. Yeah. I was a huge fan of Biggie. I mean, I, I love Tupac as well. Biggie was uh, wow. the greatest to me. So I, I was. Uh, I was a big fan of that. Now it's, you know, come further with the Jay-Z. I like listening to him. And um, so, yeah, hip-hop being 47 is, is crazy. I mean, now nowadays I love the, uh, you know, if you're doing Pandora or whatever, just the 90s rap. Yeah. Like, you can't get a bad song on there. No. You go back to mm-hmm. hip-hop station. So I love it. I love the fact that I think it's your daughter. It's like pulling I your little hand MVP. there. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's time to go. We gotta, we, we gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go. I think she wants. I think yeah. she wants waffles this morning. Yeah. Yes. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Waffles. The waffle maker. James, thank you so much for talking to us, man. Uh, thank you guys so much, Marcus. Keep running too. I'm, I'm still. I gotta still try to catch you. Yeah. Man. I can't yeah. This guy is fast. It's thank incredible, you. man. I can't even come close. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Be good, guys. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Thank you thank guys you. so much. Thanks. Thank you. But James, man, I there was so much more I wanted to I wanted, I was about to get into it, uh, with the with the white mother thing, but we're gonna continue on that. Uh because you know it made me think that for me, the person who really got most angry, like I'd come home and tell them about some racist shit that happened. It was always my mom. She was the one who was like, it can't be like this. My dad was more like, this is how it is. All right? So what you got to do is you got to learn that when this and this happens, this is the, the moves you make. But my mom was like, no, God damn it. I'm going to go and talk to them about it, you know? And that, I, I, you know, like James' mom, your mom, my mom, is really, you know, it gives me hope to see that, yes, a post-racial society, you know, would be possible, at least on the individual level, is possible because I know white people like my mother, you know. I know white people like your mom. And uh, I was just thinking about that when, because what I could glean from what he was saying, that his mom really stood up for him in tight situations. Whereas I imagine his dad being kind of like my dad, like, hey, well, this is no surprise. This is, you know, what we, we have to be prepared for. This is, you know, this is how it is. Did your mom right? ever, uh, when they used to call you the N-word, which they did with me, right? My mom's comeback was never strong enough. Right? My mom's comeback was always like, if they call no. you something, she would say, yeah, yeah. we'll call them white cookie. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. that's not bad. That's not, that, that's what not did your mom, you know? like? My mom was like, because uh, what like the main bully at my school had freckles. So she said, you know, you could call, call them... Uh, 
you know, your skin color is beautiful. Theirs is not at all as beautiful. You can call them salami face or uh, uh, you could call them maggots. You have the skin color of maggots. But see, and I did. I ran back and, I, you know, next day in school, that's what I was saying. But it never uh, it never uh, had the same effect on them. What happened was that my mom actually because I didn't tell my mom about that. I was being bullied every day by the same gang of boys and they were calling me the N word and different variations. Um, and then I told her about it. She said, go back, call them these names. And, you know, uh, I did. And my mom actually called the teacher later and the teacher said, well, yeah, they've been calling Jason names, but Jason has been calling them names too. So the teacher chose to set it at their, their, you know, even playing field. My mom's just like, yeah, whatever. That my bullying didn't stop until Paul Burton and Ariel Gomar, who were one year older, uh, you know, a black guy and a Latino guy that came down from seventh grade to sixth grade and told the boys that were bullying me because they had found out about it, that if you ever do that again, you'll have to answer to us. And that day, I never heard the N-word again at my school. Well, you know, it's interesting how, how those things, you know, I, my mom always threatened by do you want me to come with you to school? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I was don't like, make it worse. So I was like, the choice was, I'd rather take it than have my mom step into school, you know? Yeah. And there's something in it, I think, that for a person with white skin who really and truly doesn't believe in a racist structure or racist hierarchy, to be confronted with that racism exists, it kind of, that's what I think emboldens, you know, people like my mom, your mom, to want to just go straight to the authority and tell them, hey, what's this? We, we can't have this. This is unacceptable, you know? Whereas for black and brown people who over so many generations, we know that this is a fact of life. We may be much more hesitant and careful about, like, calling the, the headmaster, the principal at school, or, you know, going straight up to the office and banging your fist on the desk. You know, I, again, it reminds me of that to truly, to truly tear down the racist mindset to begin with, it has to be done by, by the awakening of white people. You know, because just like James was saying, black and brown people have been talking about this for decades. It, it, it truly needs to be white people talking about it and, and actively doing things about it for, some, for change to come about. Jason, truly, like if you boil it down, because as a, as a black and brown person, you assume whatever you're stepping into, uh, it's a mixed room. There's going to be white people, there's yeah. going to be Asians, yeah. there's going to be Latinos, there's going to be blacks, whatever. You just assume, you never assume really. So what is it? What is the, I always try to figure out, and I thought about this for, forever and never figured it out. What is the fear? Like, we're, we're not going to come back for revenge. That's not happening. We just want yeah. some basic things, like how yeah. to send our kids to school, great access to education. It's like Kimberly said, you, <laughs> you know, white people should be happy. All we want is equality and not revenge. You know, it was never about that. Marcus, always a pleasure. It was a beautiful conversation with James and... Uh, all our listeners out there, thanks for keeping up with this moment, and we'll catch you again next week. Peace! This moment is produced by Mohammed El Abed. It's an ACAST recording. 
and can be heard on all platforms. So stay tuned. More depth coming your way soon. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 